Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. Though American football has long been seen and thought of as a men's sport, Women have been taking part for over 100 years, and in the US, more girls are playing than ever before. In 2015, Jennifer Welter became the first of several women to earn a coaching position in the professional game, with 15 women now mentoring teams on the field. There's been a number of successes in other areas of the sport too. In the US, an ESPN documentary featuring the most successful women's team in the country, the Boston Renegades, is streaming on Hulu, and the NFL highlighted its investment in women's football by showing a landmark Super Bowl commercial, pledging its promise to invest in women's American football and its commitment to growing the women's game across the country. But what do these successes really mean? How far has women's American football got to go to match the men's professional game? In this episode, NTU's lecturer in sociology of sport, Dr Katie Taylor, discusses gender equality in sport and provides an insight into the history of women's American football. Hi Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Would you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm a lecturer in sociology of sport, so I work in the Department of Sport and Exercise Science. Um, I've been at NTU now for about 18 months, I've been really enjoying it since I've been here. So my research kind of really focuses on women's involvement in American football. So it started off mostly looking at it from a historical point of view, but now kind of looking at it from kind of contemporary points of view, media representation. Um, And the reason I write about it is I'm actually a qualified American football coach um, for both contact and the non-contact version of the sport. Um, And I used to be the team manager of the men's GB non-contact side as well. So that's, that's where my interest in the sport has kind of come from, really. Could you maybe just start by telling us a little bit about like the history of American football? Yeah, so the sport emerged from some dissatisfaction with rugby, I suppose. So rugby was being played across the US, but they found it a little bit boring. They didn't really understand the scrums. They're like, well, no one really wants to watch this. Um, So it emerged from that. But the kind of really important thing is that it emerged at a time in, in the US when there was this kind of perceived crisis of masculinity. There was this idea that kind of middle class men, and especially college students were becoming a bit effeminate. Um, and part of that is there was, it was a kind of a time when there was you know, fewer places for them to demonstrate their manliness. You know, they couldn't go off to the frontier and win the frontier. That was, that was done. The civil war was over. So essentially football became this kind of ultimate proving ground um, for young men to demonstrate their masculinity. So as such, it was quite important that the sport was fairly violent. Um, you know, there were deaths and, and things like that. But at no point did the deaths actually lead to a ban on the sport. It led to rule changes, like the forward pass, um, but never a ban. So the sport has kind of historically had this kind of crucial role to play in being a place for, for men to prove their, their masculinity, really. And so obviously your, a lot of your research is to do with women's participation in the sport. Can you give us a bit of the history of that and, and perhaps some of the impact that you've just described about it being very masculine um, and the impact that that's had on the history of the women's sport? Yeah, so in in terms of like how long women have been playing it, you know, everyone's kind of astonished to to find out that um, kind of the earliest evidence goes back as far as the eighteen nineties, um, and actually we see the very first attempt to, for there to be a, a actual competitive league emerges in San Francisco in in eighteen ninety seven, um, 
But a lot of these really early matches that the women played were kind of informal. They kind of organised them themselves. They um, they were actually acutely aware that it wasn't a sport that was necessarily supposed to be one they were they were playing. Um, so what they did in those early years is quite often amended the rules that they played to. So they'd play informally. They'd usually try and play away from male eyes. They would uh, amend some of the rules to reduce some of the tackling because they kind of knew it wasn't it wasn't necessarily appropriate. But yeah, so their participation goes back all that way. Um, and then as time goes by, they kind of play in, in different ways. You get into the 1920s and you start to see actually some, some physical educators decide that women playing contact sport might be a good thing to introduce to their women. Now, it's only a, like a handful of examples, but it's quite a significant change. But as time goes by, the non-contact version of the sport becomes more and more popular. Um, you see physical educators being really encouraging of, of girls playing it because I think they see it as something different for them to play, something to engage those students who are perhaps less interested, let's say, in, in other forms of physical activity. And then 1930s and 40s, you see more leagues emerge. Um, there's one that emerges in Ohio. There's one that emerges in LA and one in Chicago. And these are largely entrepreneurs who are trying to perhaps take advantage of the fact it's a bit unusual to see women play American football. And they think it might be a way to make uh, make some money. Um, but yeah, the, the whole... So women have been playing a long time. They've been playing contact version of sport from you know way back in the uh, in the eighteen nineties. But you're right that that this idea that it's a real masculine sport causes a lot of problems. Um, so like I said, so earlier in the um, in early years they, they amended the sport. The non-contact version became more popular, and you still see that today. So you still see that. Um, so the NFL, the, the last Super Bowl, had this big advert uh, showing women playing uh, American football, but it was the non-contact version of the sport. And they're supporting the non-contact version in colleges as well. So what you see today is a legacy, this whole idea that the sport is very masculine, hyper-masculine, um, in that women now have to kind of play, or the accepted way that women play the sport is a, is more of a non-contact version. But that doesn't mean there aren't women today playing playing the contact version. At the minute then, if you were to look at the leagues that we, we see, is it very much the the contact version is almost a little bit less visible? Is that what we're saying? As in it, we see the co- the non-contact, um, but the, the, the contact sport happens, but it just isn't really publicised. <clears throat> I think that's, that's probably fair to say... Um, so from in the US, so we'll start with kind of the US context, there are thriving women's leagues. Um, one in particular, Women's Football Alliance. I think when I last looked at their website, it had about 64 teams um, playing it kind of across different divisions. And they are getting more media coverage. Uh, their national uh, championship game, I think was televised on ESPN, uh, maybe on one of their internet channels, but ESPN covered it. And they are getting some media coverage. They're getting some sponsorship. But in terms of the public awareness, I don't think it's all that high. Um, the NFL have clearly been promoting the flag version of the sport, the non-contact version. That was what the Super Bowl ad was all about. They're not really supporting the contact version of the game. Um, so the flag one is the one that's that's really getting the, the kind of publicity. Um, in this country, I think it's a little bit of both. You get... Um, I think if you're following it in this country, you kind of have to go out of your way to find out about it. And then you'll probably know that both versions are, are fairly popular. Um, you know, there's, there's a number of teams across 
um, across the country for flag and for and for um, the contact version. But uh, yeah, I would say that the flag version is probably a little bit more uh, obvious to to the wider public in in the US. So what are the problems then that this kind of perception, I suppose, of masculinity and femininity present itself for women within the sport or those that actually want to participate? The fact that the flag version is so popular um, means that a lot of women perhaps don't get the opportunity to take up the, the contact version. And part of the problem that kind of is associated with that is because it's not seen as a particularly feminine sport. Um, you know, it's it's not what kind of these gendered ideas about what women, how women should behave or what sports they should take part in. I think there's a lack of awareness and lack of opportunity for women who want to play. So what you find is that some young women historically have tried to sue to find to to get the opportunity to play uh, play the contact version of the sport. They haven't always been been su- successful, but essentially there's there's no real setup. There's no real structure for young girls who want to play because the structure for boys is really clear. So they start in high school. Um, probably before that as well. So peewee football, play at high school, then go to college, and then they're drafted into the pros. None of that really exists uh, for young women. Um, they usually have to, if they want to play, they have to play on boys' teams, and then that's really down to whether the coaches will accept them. Um, so what you find with a lot of the women who do play is that they come to it a little bit later in life. So they come to it um, maybe in their 20s, 30s. There's a local team like that you know, Women's Football Alliance has got a team nearby and they join that way. Um, so, yeah, it's a big kind of uh, lack of lack of structure is, is one of the problems. What is that impact having, I guess, on kind of the, well, you're obviously describing that not having those pathways is impacting the, the people coming into it. What is the wider impact in terms of the skill level, um, the kind of depth within the sport? The, I guess, you know, we know American football is huge, um, particularly in, in the US and everything that surrounds it. I mean, it's a big business. Like, how does that impact, I suppose, what I'm saying, the play, the playing ability and all the way down to coaching and so forth into the women's game? Yeah, so the women who play are inevitably going to, you know, largely have a have a lower skill level. Um, they're still really skilled, um, but they haven't been playing perhaps, you know, usually uh, for as long as as you know boys and and young men have been playing. Um, if there's a girl, so there have been some girls and young women who've made it onto collegiate teams who have managed to find, you know, a boys team that they were allowed to play on and they've made it um, and they play in, in on collegiate teams. So in terms of the, kind of the, the coaching that they're getting, you know, they're getting the same as the boys. But these examples are so rare. You're talking like only a handful of examples. For the vast majority of women uh, who are playing, they're playing in these they call themselves semi-professional teams like the Women's Football Alliance, but they're largely players have to pay. You know, there's not really a professional element um, in terms of the women getting paid. There's very little information on the kind of coaching staff that they get. Um, but the women, some of the women who've played in the WFA are now coaching, are getting positions as coaches in the NFL. So there is, you know, they're clearly being, the players themselves are being acknowledged for having good skill levels, for having good knowledge, and they are getting good um, positions in the NFL, um, which is great. You know, there's a dozen or so starting this season who are coaching. Um, 
but you know these are rare examples. These are we are talking about only a handful. So we're talking about you know women's football is a really minority sport in the US. Um, yeah, they're joining it later. And then I, I touched on the the professionalism uh, a little bit just to give some kind of idea. You know, these women are quite often paying you know a thousand, two thousand dollars a season to be able to play. Um, and then when you compare that to uh, this off season, the the new highest paid player in the in the NFL is going to be Justin Herbert, the LA Chargers quarterback, and um, his contract's worth fifty two point two million a year. Um, but women are paying you know a couple of thousand dollars to be able to to play the sport. So um, yeah, that gives you an idea of the, the difference between the male game and the, and the female game. It's very much a minority sport. I mean, I was surprised when you mentioned earlier about the history and how long actually women have been playing it. And I guess still the development of the female game is 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 very, very slow. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how women's American football has changed over the years? Obviously, there's two perspectives in, on this. There's the GB perspective um, and the US perspective. In terms of Great Britain, um, so I, like I, I said at the start, I was the former team manager for the men's GB uh, non-contact side, the flag side. So that was, you know, back in 2015 sort of time. So I was the, I was the manager for about four years. Um, and while I was doing that, there was no female equivalent. There was no female uh, GB flag team. And I was trying to write proposals for the NGB um, to try and get a team. So I'd write, this is not going to cost you very much. Like, we can share facilities. We can do all this. And they were like, no, there's not enough women playing. Um, so a few of us went a little bit rogue. And we um, <laughs> we took some talented women over to Frankfurt in Germany for a um, for a tournament to give some of the most talented flag female flag players uh, the chance. Um, I'm not sure the NGB was very happy with us doing that, but it couldn't really stop us. Um, but a few years later, they actually did agree to have a women's team. And then I was at the first trials for that women's team. And it was incredible. There must have been about 60, 70 women turned up. I was like, you can't say that, you know, there aren't enough women playing it. Um, and they've gone on to do really good things. So they've got actually their European Championships is coming up um, towards the end of August. Um, but their last uh, Euros, they came second, which was amazing. Um, and there's more and more women playing the non-contact um, game. There are specific non-contact teams for women and they're actually able to play alongside men in the, the National League as well. In terms of the contact team, um, there's been a league for women since about 2012 and it's been slowly getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they play the, the standard 11 versus 11 format. We have a, a GB women's team. Um, they most recently came second in the world championship, only losing to the Americans. So that was uh, that was really good. And obviously we've got also some phenomenal role models. So Phoebe Schechter, who plays for GB Contact and GB Flag, She's a Sky Sports pundit, so she does the NFL coverage uh, on Sky. She's had a coaching internship with the Buffalo Bills. So the sport is growing, um, definitely. There's more and more women playing playing both versions of the sport um, in the UK. And they're getting the support of a governing body now, which they weren't necessarily before. In the US, it's kind of been hit and miss. So my research, so I've got a, a book under contract. Um, so my research kind of goes up to the 1960s, but... There's some really good books about the women's league that started in the 1970s. So there was the National Women's Football League. And that had teams in Toledo and, and in Los Angeles. 
but that kind of didn't really get off the ground. They struggled to kind of get people to go and watch. They struggled with any kind of sponsorship. And that kind of folded in the 80s. So then in the 2000s, you start to get more um, more leagues kind of start to form. Some kind of flounder and disappear quite quickly. And then you've got things like the Women's Football Alliance that, um, like I said, they've got 64 teams. There is another one. There's the Women's National Football Conference. They have about 16 teams. Um, so that's, that is kind of growing. I think it's over the past few years it has stayed around 60-odd teams in the uh, Women's Football Alliance. But like I said, they're, they're getting a bit more sponsorship, a bit more media coverage. And obviously the, the big thing is now that the NFL is um, basically partnering with the National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics and they've made flag football a collegiate sport for women. So it's actually a sport that you know is official, officially recognised sport uh, that women can um, can play. There's competitions, and the NFL supported that, and they supported it with um, financial incentives to the teams that, that kind of sign up. So it, it is growing, and there are more, are more opportunities, but it's very, very much a minority sport. You know, we talk a lot about obviously the flag game. Is that because females, from your research, is it because females want to play the non-contact version, or is it? more to do with the fact that we don't see the contact sport as much. There very may well be reasons associated with concerns over injury. Um, and no one has done any research really on, you know, why is it that, that flag is a more, um, perhaps a more popular game for women. But I think that issues do with concussion, <laughs> you know, they're, they're ever present. Uh, we know more and more about how dangerous the sport is. So I think that might have something to do with it. But I think actually that, again, this, this goes back to kind of this history that the sport is hyper-masculine, that it's all about kind of aggression and strength and all those characteristics that, you know, society has told us for years that women are not supposed to demonstrate, that it's not appropriate for women uh, to play these sports. So I think what we've got is that flag football tends to be on offer more for women because that's um, that's the... That's the expectation of that's more appropriate for women to play. And, you know, it comes down to kind of these paternalistic attitudes, really. Um, and you see it in various bits of research. So you see Dunja Antunovic has done some research on the first woman who officiated an NFL game. And when, you know, you look at her research and the comments about um, Shannon Easton, who, who's the woman who, who, who um, officiated, but the comments on articles are all about, oh, she might get hurt by standing on the sidelines. Um, and then when you look at um, research or look at articles about women who've played practicing the collegiate game, again, the message boards are, oh, but she might get hurt. You know, she might, how, how can she protect herself? So I think a lot of the reasons why we have flag as being offered more to women is because this this historical association with sport, but also this kind of paternalism that we need to we need to protect women from um, from being harmed because they're obviously too fragile to to be able to <laughs> participate. It certainly sets up a lot of barriers, doesn't it? A lot of challenges for females to get involved. And I suppose when you're talking about it from an officiating point of view, and I suppose that then maybe leads into the let's talk a little bit about um, Dr. Jenny Welter, who became the first woman to coach in the NFL. I mean, can you tell me a bit about what a historic moment that was in American football? And, and you know, how did people actually respond to having, you know, a female coach? Yeah, it was it was a massive moment. Um, 
I mean, women have historically been coaching American football for a long, long time. Um, I've had uh, an article on that um, and a piece in the Washington Post. So women have actually been coaching American football since the 1880s. Um, and especially in times of war, you know, men went to war and women, you know, traditionally took over a lot of the roles that men had to do. And that included as as football coaches. Um, and the media were, were pretty positive about them. With um, Jen Welter's... Um, her appointment was massive because no no one had done it in the in the professional leagues. Um, there was worldwide interest. This wasn't just like a US story. This was a worldwide uh, worldwide story. Um, and the articles generally were were very very positive. So I've done I'm kind of in the, in the middle of a research project around this, but a lot of the, the articles mentioned her previous playing experience. Um, she'd actually played in the men's professional league. Um, it's kind of like an indoor league, but yes, yeah, she played alongside men. She'd coached men in the past as part of that, in that same league. Um, they mentioned her gold medals that she'd won as part of Team USA. Um, and they mentioned her educational background, her MA, her PhD, things like that. Um, which is great. You know, they're really positive about it, but this need to kind of constantly reassure everyone that she was perfectly qualified to do it, you know, speaks to kind of some of the issues that female coaches face in that they constantly have to prove themselves. They constantly have to be better than men. There's a lot of research that, that indicates that. So it was great coverage, but you kind of, when you read between the lines, you think actually they need to reassure people that, you know, it's okay. Um, there were some negative reactions. There was an e-news article that rather than focus on the great achievement, decided to focus on this is what everyone's saying about it and kind of focused on the kind of sexist, misogynistic comments that were being made on, on message boards um, about it. Um, and there was one other uh, um, article worth mentioning, which is Cosmopolitan wrote a piece about it. And I've, I've written down the quote so I didn't forget it. And they basically, they basically called it a Cinderella story um, but that she was transformed, and there's a quote, in a football uniform, helmet and cleats, not a gown, a crown and heels, was uh, was how they phrased it. I was like, I get what you're trying to do, but let's not conjure the Cinderella image. It's not, not helpful. No. So the vast majority of the reaction was was great, but there's always going to be those kind of sexist comments and misogynistic comments that you get as well. And what do you think the impact was for the public and, and for other females within the sport? I mean, what have we seen? We've seen change since that, that time in 2015? Yeah, so we're getting more and more female coaches in the NFL um, with every passing uh, every passing year. Um, <clears throat> so Sam Rappaport, she's the, oh, I forget her title, I think she's a Senior Director for Diversity, Equality and Inclusion. So what she now runs, uh, and the NFL run, is a, a women's forum. And they do this every year, and they get uh, women who've coached perhaps in collegiate levels or have played to high levels, they get them together and they get them to network with team owners, managers, coaches from the NFL. And the idea is that they get the knowledge on how to, to how to make it in the NFL. So a lot of the women who've attended that are now coaching uh, in the NFL. And then we had Katie Sowers, who became the first female to coach in a Super Bowl. And then more recently, um, what's the name, Laurie Locust, who coaches with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, has won a Super Bowl um, as a female coach, which is which is amazing. Um, I've not kind of specifically looked at whether there's more and more women going into it, but it can only act as a, as a really great role model. And again, I think Phoebe Schechter being there on Sky Sports from a UK perspective, as someone who's coached in the NFL as an intern, um, 
more and more women will be able to see that it is something they can do. Because when I when I was a um, the team manager for the GB men's side, I felt like an oddity. Um, I was mistaken for being the head coach's wife at at least at one European tournament. So I felt like I was odd. But now, hopefully, these role models will show women that actually it's it's fine. And women have been coaching the sport for you know decades. Um, it is a space for me. Yeah, it's interesting that you you said that because that was one of the, my thoughts coming to mind. Like, what are the were the challenges that you experienced yourself as a female coach of a male's ga- of a male game? Yeah, it was um, it was certainly an interesting time. Um, I was I basically joined the team initially and kind of just really assisting them and helping them. And I went to a European Championships in that capacity, kind of filming games. Um, and also I had a sports massage qualification so I could, you know, help repair the players a little bit. Um, at that first European Championships, there was, um, yeah, there, there was an incident where we were kind of going out in the evening. Um, there was someone in the squad <clears throat> So the squad's made up of players and then there's associated people. We were going out in the evening and I, I had a skirt on and they took a picture of my legs and then they went, oh, that'll keep me warm tonight. And I was I was so new to the to the squad that I was like, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't kind of make a fuss out of it. No one stood up for me. Um, and the squad were genuinely <clears throat> brilliant, but I think it was just kind of brushed off as a bit of banter, um, which it probably shouldn't have been. Um, and like, yeah, like I said, I was mistaken for being the head coach's wife, uh, um, her uh, an event one of the Europeans and I did have some difficulties at time getting the the senior management in the the NGB to kind of recognize me like I think someone actually emailed me, I don't recognize her as the team manager I was like well I've been appointed by the head coach so so there were some struggles but generally um it was a really positive experience I did really enjoy it the players were brilliant um I wasn't made to feel like I was any different to any other member of the team um, which was great, but I suspect stories like mine are, you know, there's there's always going to be those little incidents, uh, incidences that that women have faced that they probably kind of just brush under the carpet as, you know, it's part of just putting up with being in a male space. But for the most part, it was I really enjoyed it. I only really stopped doing it because I um, was too busy with work and doing a master's. So obviously, the sport is as we've just chatted about really has progressed massively and with those kind of big figures within female figures within the NFL and coaching and so forth obviously we have seen increased exposure of females within the game um more people playing but what further improvements do you think the the, the women's game needs in the UK i think having more women in senior levels in the sport can only be a good thing um, when you look at the the NGB's website and look at the makeup of the board, only two of the board members are, are female. Um, the rest are the rest are male. Um, now the chair is female, so that's great. But you know, a bit more diversity on the board might be good. And I think encouraging more women and girls to play and get involved in coaching, um, especially. I was, I was having a conversation with. Um, with a colleague yesterday about the, you know the benefits of having female coaches and seeing things differently and uh, and approaching things and perhaps in a, in a different way, um, and I think then there'll be more role models. Um, obviously, like I say, we've got Phoebe Schechter, but we need kind of more role models, more women, kind of in really high levels, being kind of being seen by the public. In the US, I think there are arguments for more support from the NFL 
to support the women's contact game. Now, obviously, that comes with advantages that there'd be financial backing, there would be, you know, sponsorship, more media coverage. But then there's a downside of, you know, do women want to give away control of their sport to men? Because, you know, research by folks like um, Raph Nicholson will say, actually, once men start taking charge of women's sport, that's not always a good thing. Um, but I think a structured route to the top for for women is needed. Um, more high school teams or community teams or something like that. So there's a pathway. Because there's no pathway for women at all. Um, so having that kind of structure, having perhaps one, one unified league. At the moment, the WFA is the dominant one, but there are two. So a unified league that perhaps has more media coverage would, uh, would help. And do we think that we want equality in the sport? Or, or is that actually... I mean, we kind of just brushed a little bit on that about, you know, do we want... The men, if the NFL took more control, then actually does it give the women less control of the sport? What, what's your opinion on that? In an ideal world, equality is always, you know, going to be a, a, a good thing. Um, I do worry that if the NFL took it over, that it might be very changed. That again, this kind of, the NFL are clearly more interested in, in flag. So if they did get involved with the contact side, would they try and water it down? Would they try and, you know, take over? Um, but the other thing with equality in America, we, you can't really ever escape the fact that it's a highly violent sport. And the question is actually, should anyone really be playing it? Um, given what we know about kind of concussions, um, I mean, they're not being treated as well as they could be. So do we want to encourage more women to be playing the contact version of it? Should we be encouraging anyone, boys, you know, young men, whatever, to be playing the sport that is, that is this violent and certainly, you know, the root of the sport with this masculinity, you know, and this, this manliness embedded, woven into every kind of fabric of the, the, the sport. I don't think the NFL are going to change the, the way that the sport is, um, which is the one thing they could do. So it's going to remain a highly violent sport. So equality, you know, do we want to be getting, encouraging women to be involved in a sport we know um, is going to have long-term health? health effects so it's a big ethical issue with it all as well I mean that is quite interesting I was going to ask you about the flag aspect for the men's game because I suppose that is a very clear difference isn't it as in the NFL are interested in flag game for the women or promoting that but do we actually see much about the flag game in men's in the US it's funny you should say this because actually the um in the US they've always had this event called the Pro Bowl and the Pro Bowl has been, it's like an all-stars game, essentially. So all the best players from the AFC and the NFC, the, the two kind of major leagues, get selected and they um, and they play this match. Now, traditionally, it's happened either the, the week before the Super Bowl or the week after the Super Bowl. And it's a, it's a full contact match. Um, I mean, they tend to scale it back a little bit because it's the end of the season. No one wants to get hurt. But it's still, you know, full of tackles and everything else. But this past season, they trialed something different where they made it a bit more of a skills test. So the same same way players were still selected um, and voted for onto these all-star teams. But then they had skills tests, like for the kickers, a kicking test, or for quarterbacks, an accuracy test. Um, and then they played flag games. So they had the NFL players playing flag games instead of this full contact version. So it is becoming a little bit more... Um, kind of known to the public, I suppose. The NFL are promoting it. Now, part of it, I think, was due to concerns 
that, um, I mean, the Pro Bowl was not getting very high ratings. You know, there's potential for harm. Um, so the NFL are doing more to promote men playing um, flag, but not probably as like proper competitive leagues. And in a way, I think the Pro Bowl was probably seen as oh, a bit of a laugh. It's a bit of a joke. Look at these guys playing flag, um, which is probably not the message. But it's it's certainly it's been a bit more promoted. But you know, you don't hear much about it really. I mean, it's like what you said, I suppose, the question before this last one, really, where actually it's a hypermasculine sport. They don't want to change that. That's what it has been historically. And I suppose that's what viewers are wanting to see. Absolutely. Um, Whenever there are changes to rules that are designed to protect players, then there's usually an outcry from some individuals going, oh, we're just making it into a, uh, you know, into a girl sport or a sissy sport. You get all these kinds of phrases uh, banded about. Um, so yeah, so there are some fans who are always going to get upset if anything is done to reduce the kind of violence and the number of people getting concussed because some people just, you know, that's what they, what they want to see. Um, and that is a a minority, but it's a quite vocal minority, um, that I think the NFL will be worried about losing too many people watching it if they sanitize the sport, um, too much. So if you could just sum up for us, I suppose, finally, like, are we in a good place for female American or women's American football? It's getting better. It is getting better. Um, it's nice to see that the WFA getting significant sponsorship deals. Um, it's good that they're getting more media coverage. Um, and from the GB perspective, loads and loads more girls are playing it. I've coached them at, I used to coach in a sixth form college as well. I used to get girls joining the team. Um, so yeah, it's getting better. Um, it's not it's not there yet. We definitely need more women coaches. Um, and it's hard because it's, you know, it's a voluntary activity. It takes up a lot of time. Um, but the more women we can get into kind of coaching, into high profile positions, um, that would, that would be even better. So it's still a minority sport, but it's, it's getting better. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to find out more about Katie's research, please have a look in the episode description. You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.